Church, let's just say thanks to all these families and encourage them. I think uh, Ann, Ann mentioned we are uh, dedicating 20 kiddos this morning and uh, more across our campuses. The Lord is, uh, we have literally hundreds, right, of kids here and across our campuses, and that's a wonderful privilege, right, from the Lord that he's given us that many kiddos and trusted them to our care, and it's a weighty responsibility, right, to pass on the faith to the next generation. So uh, we mean it when we say that takes the whole church, right, to do that well as we serve, as we serve in LifePoint Kids, as we're in life group with one another. Uh, just praying for one another and modeling what it looks like to follow, to follow Jesus. Um, some of these kids will stay with us this morning, right? It's Child Dedication Sunday, so it might be a little noisier in here. Uh, it was at the 9.30, that's okay, right? It's the sound of the next generation, and that's totally, totally fine. So we're grateful to have them, have them with us. Um, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things. One, guests, if it's your first time here, just want to say welcome. My name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus, and uh, this resource is for you. If you're wondering if you, can I use my smartphone in church? Yes, you can. Uh, use the QR code in front of you, or go to lpguest.com, just type that in. The message notes are there for this morning. There are a lot of scriptures this morning. We're going through two full chapters this morning, which may be a bad idea, but we're doing it anyway. So uh, the scriptures are there for you. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 19, but that's a resource for you guests. And there's also a guest information card there that takes about a minute to fill out. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment to fill that out, we'd love to have some feedback from you. Secondly, last week we took some time corporately to pray uh, over just the conflict going on in Israel, and we prayed for the church there. We prayed uh, that God, if by any means possible, would bring uh, this conflict to an end. I want to point your attention to a resource here, sendrelief.org. So uh, our national network of churches, we, this is sort of a wing of that network. They work with aid and providing care and material needs and spiritual care, uh, sort of mercy ministry across North America, across the world. And so every time that we give as a church, as you give here, we then give uh, to Send Relief. But if you go to their website, you can see they've listed out some ways that you can be praying right now. Send Relief is already on the ground there, working with a local nonprofit organization that's been there for years and years and years in that area doing relief work. So they're on the ground there and partnering there. And also, if you want, you can give directly to Send Relief and, and support financially what they're doing. So I uh, just want to give that resource toward you, toward, uh, for you. So if you've got a Bible, go to Revelation 19. We're going to finish up this series next week. We're in week nine today uh, of this series that we're calling New. We are studying our way through the book of Revelation, heading towards Revelation 21 and 22 next week when Jesus returns and makes all things new. And something we've said every single week, sort of the big idea of the series, is that Revelation is more about present hope than a future calendar, right? It's more about present hope than a future calendar. For many of us, when we think of the book of Revelation, we think about, you know, end time prophecies. And and while the book certainly addresses the future, the purpose of the book was and is really more pastoral in a way. It It was a letter written by Jesus through the Apostle John to the early Christians and to us, Christians of every century, to say, hey, in light of the certainty of Jesus's return, live your life faithfully to him. It's not, the purpose is not to say, hey, when this happens, you've got T minus 10 years till Jesus comes back, right? So make sure you're ready. It doesn't work that way. And so it's not about an end time calendar. It's about, hey, Jesus has won. He defeated Satan, death and hell at the cross. And then one day he's coming back and he's gonna finish what he started here. He's gonna, he's gonna bring it to completion. So in light of that, stay faithful, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and don't give in to the pressure 
of the world around you that constantly calls us to turn our attention and our eyes somewhere in our hearts, somewhere else. That's really the purpose of the book of Revelation. We've said it was, it was a letter. We've also said it was an apocalyptic letter, okay, that it's an apocalypse. And the reason we brought that up is apocalyptic literature is, is strange to us. It uses a lot of symbols and images and, and all sorts of things that can just seem very odd. And I I've told this story one other time. So if you're new today, I'm telling this story for you. So um, when I was in college, I was a history major and I had studied a fair bit of European history and American history, but I had never taken any Asian history. So I thought, man, I wanna learn more about Asian history and this part of the world and the culture there. So I signed up for a class that was, I thought about Japan and sort of the surrounding reasons. It did turn out, it was about that. However, the first day I sat in class, the syllabus, it's plopped on my desk and I looked down and the title on the syllabus is Japan and the Four Little Dragons. And I had a brief moment of panic that I thought I'm in the wrong place, right? So what nobody told me was that the little dragons referred to Taiwan and South Korea and Singapore and uh, Hong Kong because in the 60s and 70s and 80s, they grew so quickly economically, they were sometimes in academic literature referred to as dragons, right? So it was Japan and the dragons. Totally legit, right, historically. I thought oh my goodness, I'm in a Dungeons and Dragons mythology class, right? Like, I am in the wrong place. And so I was looking for the doors, like, how do I get out of here? I mean, almost to the point uh, of sweating. And so I'm looking for the doors going, how do I get out of here? And then the professor, plan, you know, he proceeds to get up and explain, hey guys, you know, this is what this is. And deep breath. I tell you that story because I imagine if you're new today and you've not been with us through Revelation, you might feel that way in about five minutes, Right? that we're gonna open up Revelation 19 and 20. We're gonna go through it and there are beasts and a dragon and a rider on a white horse. And I could just imagine if you're brand new to this, brand new to Christianity, brand new to our church, that you're going, man, <laughs> where are the exits, right? Like I, I came here wanting to like maybe learn about how I could improve my marriage or get some direction in life or learn something about Jesus and the Bible. And this guy's talking about mythical creatures, right? And so uh, here's what I'll say, stick with us. The images are purposeful. The symbolism is purposeful. And in a roundabout way, I, I do think we'll address all those things you're hoping for. You, you learn to understand who Christ is. You learn this book and, and you're gonna learn, yeah, actually that does help me be a better spouse. That does give me direction in life. That does teach me about what, who Jesus is and what my life is about, just not initially in the ways that maybe, maybe you thought, right? So stick with us as we go through Revelation 19 and 20. So uh, if you've got a Bible, Revelation 19, we're gonna start in verse one. The first thing that happens here is that the saints begin to sing and worship over something that we saw happen in 17 and 18. So in chapter 17 and 18 from last week, the, what we see is that Babylon the Great, okay? It's a, it's the, we see a woman sitting on a dragon in 17 and 18. We talked about this last week. Who is this? Uh, or she's sitting on a beast and, and she's called a prostitute. And what it says is this person represents somebody called Babylon. And we said, what did Babylon represent? Babylon represented the, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire in all of its addiction to wealth and all of its pride and all of its sexual immorality and in all of its persecution of the people of God. The Roman Empire murdered 40,000 Christians by some estimates during these years when this was written. And we said Babylon represents the Roman Empire. But we said it also represents more than that. Babylon represents every kingdom and every empire that sets itself up against the kingdom of God and his people. And then we said it represents even more than that. In a big, big, broad way, Babylon represents the sinfulness of the human heart. 
and humankind's desire to say, Lord, we don't need you. We'll go build ourselves a tower to heaven. We will save ourselves. We don't need you. And, and that life, that Babylonian living, we said, is marked by sexual immorality, by addiction to wealth, just materialism and opulence. It's marked by the persecution of the saints. It's marked by pride. And so here in chapter 19, we see God comes and he judges. We saw it in 1718. He judges Babylon. This day that comes when the world's system and the world's values pass away and the people who have chased after that, right? This is, this is for you. I don't, I don't mean to be harsh, but if this is the way, if you're chasing right now after sex, pleasure, wealth, or anything else, saying that's gonna, that's gonna fill my, the void in my heart, eventually that stuff passes away. And it says the people who loved Babylon, they weep and they wail at her demise. But the people of God, they celebrate God coming and bringing justice. That's what happens in verse one. It says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in, in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Goes on to say that the 24 elders and the four living creatures that we met back in chapter four, they fall down and worship. And then it says all creatures great and small worship God and they cry out hallelujah. And uh, I found this really interesting. So Daryl Johnson in his book, uh, Discipleship on the Edge, I've referenced that several times in this series. He talks about how in the New Testament, the only place in the New Testament where we see the word hallelujah, which means praise you Yahweh, right? Praise God. All of you praise God. It says only place is right here in Revelation. And so then he asked the question, well, where do we see hallelujah in the Old Testament? He said, we see it most often in the Psalms. And in the Psalms, you see it most often in Psalm 113 through 118. They're called the Hallel Psalms, right? Or the Hallelujah Psalms. And he, he just asked the question, what are those Psalms talking about? Where, where all the people of God are crying out, hallelujah, hallelujah. It's talking about how God delivered the people from Egypt how he came and he judged the nation that had persecuted God's people and he then delivers the people of God out of Egypt. And how did he deliver them? When he came in justice, right? The people of God put the blood of the lamb, a blood, the blood of a lamb above the doorposts of their homes and they were passed over, they were delivered. That's what started the festival of the Passover. And you fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus on Passover, right? At the festival of Passover, sits with his disciples and he institutes the Lord's Supper. And as they're eating the bread and the wine, he says, hey, this bread, it represents my body broken for you. This wine represents my blood shed for you. So what he's doing is telling us all of this deliverance of people, it's all pointing forward to a greater deliverance. That's what the people of God are celebrating here. God has come and he has delivered us from the ultimate Egypt, from Babylon, from our own sinfulness. And the way we've been delivered is that Jesus has come, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the grave. And when we take the blood of the lamb, the blood of Jesus, and we put it over the doorposts of our lives, we trust him, we are forgiven and made new and delivered. That's what's happening here, right? Thank you. Someone needed to say amen. So amen, right? And so the people of God are crying out, hallelujah, God has delivered us and he's destroyed evil and he's doing it once and for all. Now, the scene shifts, verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. We get here, not the, the judging of Babylon, but the marriage supper of the lamb. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, 
Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The lamb referring to Jesus, the bride being you and me. The bride refers to the church. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, just to pause there and note something. You might be wondering, like, who gets invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? All those who are in Christ. You say, wait a second, I thought we were the bride of Christ, right? This is the fluidity of analogies and illustrations and symbolism in Revelation. It's why we get ourselves into real trouble when we try to fit it into sort of our methodology and say, no, 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 like it has to fit inside of all the boxes. the, The author seamlessly goes from this illustration to this, hey, we're the bride of Christ, but it's also like a marriage where we invite people. Blessed is everybody who gets invited to the marriage. That's just, that's how Revelation works. And he, says to, and he said to me, going on in verse 9, and he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, the angel said to John, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If you're a note taker, you can just underline or circle worship God and you can maybe write this. That's a fair summary of the entire Bible. <laughs> Like, what's the Bible all about, right? It's about the return of Christ. It's about Jesus, about what he's done. And it is the, one of the core messages is, guys, God and God alone is worthy of your worship and adoration. If you're gonna center your life on anything or anyone, make it him because he's the one who made you, created you, formed you, loved you, gave you everything you have and then rescued you by the blood of his son. Make it about Jesus. Worship God and God alone. If you are not Caesar, which was a a major theme to those Christians in the first century, Caesar would call himself King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And here the angel's saying, no, Caesar is not worthy of your worship. Not angels, not money, not sex, not achievement, not romance, not Babylon, not science or technology, not anything or anyone else in all the world is worthy of your worship. Worship God and God alone. And then comes the marriage feast, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. I just one of, one of, I think, the beauties of our faith, right, is that when we come to the climax of the world, when we come to the return of Jesus, is there a battle? Yes. Is there the judgment of sin? Yes. There's some heaviness to these things. And it's a wedding. <laughs> it's God taking his people and saying, man, I've prepared you like a bride, and I'm bringing you to the husband, to Jesus himself, one who loves you like nobody else ever has or will and you get to be with him forever. And you think about the joy, right? The preparation of getting ready for a wedding. I I get to do a fair bit of weddings, right? The amount of work that's involved in it is insane, right? Anyone who's ever planned a wedding, you know it's a preparation. And one of our our pastors said it this week. I I just love the way he said it. I said, man, I'm gonna quote you on this. He said, every every time we take communion, this whole life, it's like, a, it's like a preparation for the day we meet Jesus. And he said, every time we take communion, it's like the rehearsal dinner. The rehearsal dinner is you sitting down saying, let's go over everything for tomorrow, make sure we're ready. He said, every time we take communion, we took it last week, right? Where we celebrated, we read from 1 Corinthians where the apostle Paul says, right? Every time we drink, we take this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes. We're saying, Jesus, right, thank you for saving me and I can't wait for the day 
when I'm with you and you're with me forever. And if you're here today and you love Jesus, I'll say this a couple of times through this morning, right? If you're here today and you love Jesus, you're heading towards a wedding and your whole life is like the engagement period, right? Keep your eyes fixed on the groom. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you're still walking and living in rebellion against him, the invitation to you is, look, turn. Turn from your sin. Trust your life to the one who came and died and rose again for you. Now, note the, note the tension. Just go back and look at seven and eight. Uh, there's a tension here about how does the bride get ready for the groom? How do we as Christians be ready for that day? Is it something we do? Or is it something that Jesus has done for us? So verse seven says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Which makes it seem like, well, it's our responsibility. We gotta be ready. But then it says in verse eight, it was granted to her <laughs> to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So you go back to, well, deeds seem important, but it also says it was, these linen garments were given to her. It was granted to her to, to wear these. This is a tension we find all over the Bible. The relationship between faith and works, between just trusting Jesus but then living a life in obedience to him, living a life that evidence, let me put it this way, it makes no sense to say, I trust Jesus, okay? How is your life any different since you started trusting Jesus? I don't know, <laughs> but I trust him. I prayed that prayer a long time ago. It's like, well, there should be evidence of that. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Just listen to these words. They won't be on the screens, but just listen. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He says, salvation, it's a gift. There is nothing you can earn or do to earn the favor of God. It's given to you as a free gift received by faith. And nobody gets to be prideful about that. By the way, if you're here today and, and you're not a Christian, I've heard this a number of times, right? People, you're not a Christian, you're like, Christians are people who just look down on other people. They just think they're better than other people. And listen, sometimes we do that. Sometimes I've done that. And I'm sorry, that's wrong. When we're doing that, we're not acting in a Christ-like way, okay? But that's not what we believe. We don't believe we're better than anyone else. We would say, hey, we think all of us are sinners deeply in need of grace, and that grace is a gift. Nobody gets to be prideful about it because it's given by God through Christ to you, and it's open to anyone. And then it goes on, though, and says, right, so salvation's a gift given freely by grace through faith. And then he says this in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul says we're saved by grace through faith, not works. Then the apostle James, right, goes on and says, well, yeah, but faith without works is dead. <laughs> if you have faith, but you don't do anything, then, then that faith really isn't. So that's a tension we walk through in all of the scriptures. And I'll just summarize it by saying again, now we are saved, it is granted to us. Those linen garments given to us by Christ and what we do matters, right? It is costly grace, cost Jesus his life, his very blood. So for us to say, I trust him, that has to flow out into a life that's been changed, <clears throat> excuse me, by him. All right, verse nine says, blessed is everyone invited to this feast. And I just said it a moment ago, <clears throat> if you're here and you love Jesus, you're headed towards a wedding and it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be the best wedding ever. And, and sometimes we talk about what does it mean to be blessed? 
And if we're honest with ourselves, even within Christian circles, sometimes when we talk about, man, I'm blessed, we, we, we mean financial stuff. Had a good year. <laughs> Stock market's going well, right? I'm, we're blessed. We have a lot of a home. It's great. We're, we're blessed. And those are blessings. That's a good thing. But just hear me clearly. Hear the scriptures clearly. The greatest blessing in your life is not anything financial or material. It is being known by Jesus and knowing him. Amen. It is being loved by Jesus and loving him and the fact that you're his bride and he your groom. And if you're here today and you don't know him, I'll say it again. He invites you. Knocks on the door. Open. Turn from your sin. Trust him. Let him make you new. All right, go over to verse 11 for a minute. We're going to change scenes again. There's a rider on a white horse. Verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. It's a reference to Jesus at his second coming. I want you to notice something right away. The difference between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We've talked about this before, right? Don't, don't keep Jesus as a baby, right? Jesus came the first time, meek and mild. Deity wrapped in humanity, suffered and died, went to the cross. That's not how he comes the second time. He comes the second time as a warrior king, <laughs> the coming Messiah who is conquering. And the first and second coming are very different, but they're also very connected. He's coming in the victory that he won the first time. <laughs> At the cross, through his suffering, right? The Apostle Paul in Philippians says, by his obedience and suffering, right, he went to the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and given him the name above every other name. The way he comes back the second time, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're going to sing about it at the end of our time together today. Son of suffering, right? The, the, praise Jesus, the one who came and walked here in the dirt with us. That's how he came the first time. But the second time he comes, it is an absolute, total, and utter victory, conquering the Messiah King. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> his eyes like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'll summarize to you what happens next. There's another feast. So in result to the victory of Jesus, there's another feast. And honestly... It's hard to read, hard to stomach. It's this feast that's like a parody of the marriage feast where a loud voice calls out to the birds of the air, the vultures, and says, hey, come gather for the feast of God. But it's the feast, it says, the flesh of kings and all those who've set themselves up in opposition to the rider on the white horse, all those who warred against God. And, and the imagery is stark. It's, it's meant to be. I think about some of the images that we're seeing right now uh, in social media and on the news, right, coming out of Israel. Some of those images are, are horrifying. Uh, as a total side note, by the way, just parents, teenagers, right, um, just be wise and discerning in what you watch, right? We talk about that a fair bit here, that just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. The question we need to be asking ourselves is, is this helpful for me in my pursuit of Christ? So don't want to be ostriches in the sand who are like, see no evil, right? No, you should be aware of what's going on in the world. And especially for parents, like 
your teenager might just doesn't need to watch every video that pops up here with some of the horrifying images that we're seeing right now. And teenagers, that's a choice you have to make. To say, hey, you know, when it gives the disclaimer, this video has tons of graphic content, ask yourself, is this going to be helpful for my soul, right? Can I read a summary about it later rather than watch the horrifying, gruesome images now? But it's a little bit what we see here. It is arresting. It is, it's meant to cause us to stop and think. Well, then the beast and the false prophet and all the armies of the world that, that have come together to fight against the white rider in an instant, they're defeated. The armies are killed, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Honestly, you read it, it's one of the great ironies of the book of Revelation is over and over and over, we keep coming to this final battle. Like this has happened like four times. And you come to the final battle, this big climactic battle, and it's over before it starts. (laughs) Jesus shows up and it's over. And it's just meant to remind us, right? Jesus wins. (laughs) There's no one who challenges his authority. Satan might be his enemy. He is not his equal. Jesus shows up and the battle is over. All right, scene shifts again. Anyone dizzy yet? Yeah? Okay, chapter 20, verse one. We get to what's called the thousand years. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Here's what happens next. During that thousand years, thrones are set up. All those who have been martyred for Christ. All those, it says, who refused to take the mark of the beast. All those who refused to worship the beast. All those who said, man, I'm staying faithful to Jesus. No matter how dark it gets, Lord, I'm clinging to you. It says they reign with Christ during that time until finally the enemy then is let back out. But before I talk about that, let me address this thousand years, okay? In Christian theology, this is often called the millennium, right? Because the millennium means, shockingly, a thousand years, right? And so there are three primary positions on this. I'm gonna address this briefly, just like I did with the tribulation. Um, If you're coming here today and you're like, he's gonna tell us, right? Which one is right? I'm not, okay? I will sorely disappoint you. Some of you, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Others of us, you're like, I am deep into the study of this. I love it. There's nothing wrong with that. But just let me briefly say this, okay? There are three historic historic Christian positions on the millennium. What's called premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism, okay? Premillennial, so premill, amill, and postmill is usually how it gets shortened. Um, pre, pre-mills, premillennialists say, hey, Christ comes before the millennium, right? Then there's a thousand years he returns, then there's a thousand years of the saints reigning with him, and then there's sort of a second coming again at the end of it, and then forever, right? It's a very short summary of that. Amillennialists say, you know what? It's symbolic, right? Jesus came, cross, at the cross, he put the enemy to open shame. So Satan, in a very real sense, is bound all through the church age. And then someday Jesus is going to come again and then forever, right? And amillennialists kind of acknowledge, you know, it doesn't look like Satan's bound in some ways. Evil and suffering is still around, but he can't deceive the nations the way that he once did because we're proclaiming the gospel and people are coming to faith. Postmillennialists would say, well, they agree a lot with amillennialists, but they sometimes say somewhere in that church age is a thousand years. But mostly the difference between amillennialism and postmillennialism is that postmillennialists really emphasize from the time of Jesus' first coming until his second coming, 
there will be a time where, where we reign with Christ and Satan is bound in such a way that the gospel moves forward and it transforms society. That Christians will experience influence and dominance in culture because of the transformative power of the gospel. All millennialists don't emphasize that as much. Now, you're like, okay, cool. Which one's right? I don't know, right? Uh, there, are, there are strong biblical arguments for all of these. There are some holes in all of them. And here's what I would say, guys. In the spirit of humility and charity towards one another, in the spirit of love, there are really, really godly people who sit in each one of these camps. There are really godly scholars who have written books on each one of these things. It is not a reason to divide. It is not a reason. We, we can debate one another, right? We can have passionate debate around those things. It is not a reason to divide, and it is not a reason. If you're one of the person who loves the study of this, and you have a very strong position on one of these, it is not a reason to look down on a brother or sister who holds a different position than you do. We all agree on the chief things, and that is Christ comes back, and Jesus wins, and we get to be with him forever, right? That is, yeah, please, absolutely, right? Now, I'll just say what I said again in a bit because I wrote it here in my notes. I think it bears repeating. Um, Satan may be the enemy of God, but he's not the equal of God, okay? That's on full, that's on full display in this passage. So I love it. Um, I, notice God doesn't even come down to fight Satan himself. <laughs> he just sends an angel. He's like, hey, grab the serpent and throw him in the pit, right? His time's up. And I, so I'm reading um, to my boys right now and, and Allie, when she wants to listen, I'm reading The Hobbit um, because that's what parents do, right? They read Tolkien to their kids, right? Um, <laughs> kidding. And so I'm, I'm reading The Hobbit to them, and in The Hobbit, one of the, the, the primary antagonists, the chief villain, is Smaug the dragon, right? And, and what Tolkien is doing there, right? So the dragon is this formidable foe that nobody can really conquer. It seems like nobody even has the courage to fight him or face him. What Tolkien is doing there is he's drawing from mythology, he's drawing from biblical theology, right? There's this dragon in history that sort of inspires all the other dragons and seems like such a formidable foe and who's going to fight him? And I just love that when the moment comes, right, the, the dragon, the dragon who inspires all other dragons, God just sort of snaps his fingers and says, yeah, his time's up. Go grab him and throw him in the pit. He puts him in the pit. He's kept there for a thousand years. When he's let out to go deceive the nations again, it says he's released. He's a dragon on a leash, He's not allowed to, he's only allowed to work within the confines that God gives him. God's authority and sovereignty is on full display. Satan is released, verses seven through nine. We get yet another vision of this great battle, right? Where Satan gathers all the armies and they come against the kingdom. And look at verse nine. It looks like it gets really bad. It says, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. <laughs> battle over. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I just want to make sure we note there. Thus ends Babylon and the beast, the false prophet and the dragon. And thus ends evil and injustice and murder and slavery and human trafficking and war and the killing of children. Thus ended racism and classism and prejudice of all forms and kinds and hatred and inequality and pride and selfishness and evil and sin itself. God has done away with it. 
there is coming a day, and we're going to get there next week, guys. So we've been through a lot of heavy stuff in Revelation. Next week is the new creation, and we, my hope is we will just roll around in the fields of the new creation and have such a good time just saying, Lord, Jesus has made all things new, but we get glimpses of it here, that one day he's going to do away with all, before the new creation can come. Before we can go roll around in the fields and say, look, the, the world is the way that it should be, God first has to deal with evil and injustice and sin. And he does it here. And then comes the next moment, right? The judgment before the great white throne. So the dragon, the scene shifts one more time. The dragon has been dealt with, but the followers of the beast, the followers of the dragon, and the followers of the lamb must still stand before the throne of God and be judged. And I, as I read this, this is, this is really heavy. It involves you and me and everyone in this room. I don't think any Christian should speak lightly about these things, right? So, so let's read it. Then I saw, verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Such is the power of him who's seated on the throne. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what, had been, what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them, or in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. What we do matters. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That last verse, right, it's a reference to hell, to a real place or state of eternal judgment and separation from the presence and love of God. And I know that's hard to hear. I know it is. I, again, I don't, that's why I said I don't think any Christian should talk about these things lightly. I don't think anyone should, any person should talk about these things lightly. But I've got a few minutes left, and my goal in those few minutes is not to try to defend God. I don't think God needs defending. And it's not to explain, try to explain heaven and hell, make it all make sense. It's not to try to convince you of the rightness or wrongness of God's judgment or justice. If you're interested in learning more about that, you say, Kale, I really wrestle with those things. I, I need to read more. Uh, just as starters, right? I would recommend to you uh, Rebecca McLaughlin's um, Confronting Christianity, right? Great book recently that, that she wrote. She's got a chapter in there um, dedicated to that. Why would a loving God send people to hell? And I would also recommend Tim Keller's The Reason for God, right? written uh, about 15 years ago. He's got another chapter in there called Why would a, How Could a Loving God Send People to Hell? And um, if you want to study more, you can read on that just as a starting place. But I, what I want to draw our attention to as we close, um, something that struck me as I read these chapters, and specifically this last part, is that when it comes to the return of Christ, there's just no middle ground. When it comes to the return of Jesus, there's, there's no more time to be just sort of in a neutral place, right? Some of us, by personality, that's where we like to be. Oh, I don't want to get too extreme. I, you know, I don't want to get here, be here. I just want to be right in the middle. And there's no place for neutrality when it comes to the return of Christ. You're either in front of him facing the sword or you're behind him following him. <laughs> you're either his or not. And, and so the question, right, the question, this is the big application. If you're sitting here today and you say, what, what should I do with this? Well, if you love Jesus, 
right? We've been saying it all through the series. Look at your life and say, man, I belong to him. (laughs) And praise God, right? My name is written in the book of life. That is the greatest blessing I will ever have. That's what Jesus said to the apostles, right? They came back after he sent them out for ministry. They're like, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us. This is awesome, right? And Jesus says, guys, I know that's awesome, but what's most awesome is that your names are written in heaven. (laughs) God has saved you. So if you're here today and and you know you should celebrate, you should long for and love and look for the return of Christ and say, Lord, until that day comes, help me to be faithful. Help me to share you with those around me. Help me to live like I believe these things. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you're still living in rebellion against him, you're still stiff-arming God running this way, I mean, the clear call is, look, that does not end well. When Christ comes, you're either in him or not. And my hope for you, the Lord, right? Scripture says, right, he doesn't want to see any perish, but he's patient with us to bring all. He wants to see all come to salvation. And so the call has been turn. If today you hear his voice, if today you're saying, man, it's clear. I know where I am. I'm running away from Christ. Know that God sent Christ running after you in love for you. And today is an opportunity for you to stop and say, man, I want to turn from this. I want to stop chasing money, sex, power, achievement, whatever it is I'm running to that I think is going to fill this void in my soul. I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to trust Jesus with my life. And for some of you, you're convinced of that already. You're like, amen and amen. And for others of us, I wonder if maybe you're sitting there just going, okay, Kale, I understand that's the decision, but Why should I love Christ? Why should I worship God? Why should I love him? And we could sit here and go through, well, because he created you, (laughs) because he formed you, because he gave you everything that you have and everything in your life is a gift from him, including the air that you've been breathing this entire service. I mean, we could go through that, but I would more appeal to you and just say, man, love him because he first loved you. That's what the apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. He's he's talking about why would somebody die for somebody else? And he says this, for while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Today, if you're looking at your life right now, and you say, man, I am running from God. Know that God looked at you as you ran towards Babylon. Know that God looked at you as you ran away from him. Know that God looked at you in all of your pride, looked at me in all of my pride and sinfulness, and he sent Christ for you, for me, for us. And he loved us first. And so love him for who he is, and love him for what he's done. At the cross, he said, it's finished. The defeat of the enemy is sure. And at his return, he will bring it to final completion. And my hope for everyone here is that you'll be able to look forward to that return and long for it, looking forward to the day where you are with your Savior forever. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray for those of us who would say, Lord, we belong to you that, Lord, you have saved us and you've rescued us and we have received by faith what you have offered us through the life and death and resurrection of your Son. God, will you help us to live faithfully?
we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, Lord, just praying for one person in our life who doesn't know you, seeking for an opportunity to share Christ with them. Lord, will you set that on our hearts? Will you remind us you've placed us here for a reason and for a purpose? It's not to just sit around till the day you come home or call us home. Give us the grace, Father, and the power and the courage and, Lord, the love and faithfulness and your spirit to live with our eyes fixed on Jesus and to love those around us. I wanna give you a moment just to pray that. If that's you today and you need to confess anything to the Lord, if you need to commit to the Lord to reprioritize this morning, take a moment and do that now. As you continue to pray, I wanna say to anyone here, right? As we continue to pray, if you're here today and you're saying, Kale, that person running from God, that's me. That person holding God at arm's length, that is me. Today is an invitation to you. It's a call to you to say, stop. Stop trying to fill your life and heart with other things that you know deep down can't satisfy. Turn from your sin. Ask God for forgiveness. He offers it freely. He purchased it for you already with the blood of his son. If you wanna pray with me, you pray with me now. Say, Lord, today I, I do ask for the forgiveness of my sin. I accept Jesus, what you did for me and what you offer me through the cross, through your resurrection. And Lord, from this day forward, I turn away from the old life and I give my life to you. Will you help me from this day forward to follow you and to fix my eyes on you? Lord, here's my life. Use me as you will. Lord, we thank you that anybody who prays that prayer in faith, even now, days from now, years from now, Father, when they pray it in faith, you answer it. And God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen.